Well, I know some of you know this, but I'm, I'm from a town in Missouri called Washington, and it's on the river about an hour west of St. Louis. And I grew up there and went to high school there. And I went back there Friday and had one of the weirdest experiences I've had in a long time. I went back for a class reunion. Yeah. And I went back because this fall is the 40th anniversary, I hate saying that, 40th anniversary of a high school football game that I played in my senior year. And in this small town, there were two high schools. There was a Catholic high school and a public high school. And the schools had never played each other in football, ever, before that. And they haven't played each other since. And in that game, our school, the public school, won that game. And so Friday night, they wanted to celebrate the 40th anniversary of this fall's game. And so everybody met back at the football stadium there in Washington, Missouri, and it was kind of fun. And I was really excited, and I had to bribe my wife to go by getting her tickets to a Cardinal baseball game so she would go with me. So we went, and as we were approaching the stadium, I'm going, hey, I don't know if this is a good idea. Because I was getting a little anxious, you know. I hadn't seen some of these people in 39 years. And so we went, and we walk in, and I'm looking around, and I don't recognize anybody. And this guy comes up and introduces himself to me. He's like, hey, it's Gary, you know, Hassenjäger. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Gary, yeah, nice to see you again. No idea who he was. You know, and I introduce myself to him, and he's like, oh, yeah, like this. And then we're standing there talking, and he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, there's John Holmeyer. And I'm like, what? See, John Holmeyer was my best friend in high school, and I didn't recognize him at all. If he hadn't pointed him out, he could have walked right past me, and I would have never, ever dreamed that that was him. I'm like, he got old. <laughs> and so he's walking past me, and I'm like, Homeyer. And he stops, and he looks over at me, and he's like, like do I know you? <laughs> and I'm like, Tony Diekman. He's like, what? And I'm like, inside, I'm like, Seriously? <laughs> and it's like time after time that evening, I, same experience. It's like people are looking at me and I'm like, have I gotten that old that people don't recognize me? I mean, they look old. <laughs> but really? And so I went back, when I got home, I, I, I pulled out my yearbook and I pulled out some pictures and I, I just looked at them and I'm like, yeah, dude, you've gotten old. <laughs> the guy on the right is John Holmeyer, and just in case you don't recognize me, I'm the guy on the left. Yeah, 39 years ago. Crazy. Right? And as I'm looking at this picture, I'm thinking, and I hear this voice in my head, this like 18-year-old Tony going, what happened to you? I mean, look at you, right? What used to be up here is down here. <laughs> what used to be here is up here. And I'm just like, good grief. Really? It's like, you drive a Suburban. And I'm like, yeah, but I love my Suburban. Yeah, but that's the problem. You love your Suburban. <laughs> it's like, what happened to you? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You didn't have everything together either. Right? I mean, you thought you were all that, and you were about as dumb as a box of rocks. 
You thought you had it all figured out. You, you, you don't understand the messes I've had to clean up for the last 39 years that you started eight, you know, at 18. And if you think about it, I mean, if you stop and think about it for a second, I've got my act together. I mean, you have no idea. I mean, you thought you were all that. But we're more than that now. Right? I mean, now stop for a second. We don't look as bad as that guy. It could be worse. And then this hand like sort of taps me on the shoulder in the midst of this like weird moment of talking to myself. And it's like, when you get done pointing your finger and patting yourself on the back, I have something for you to hear. You know, there's this word that I want you to hear that I had been studying for the last several weeks. And it's this from Ephesians 2. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. He's created a new in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. You know that 18-year-old version of yourself that you, you sometimes are embarrassed of? He was God's masterpiece. And this older version that sometimes you're not so pleased with and you're really sort of disgusted with at times, he's God's masterpiece too. And I've been at work, God says, in perfecting you. I've been at work in you. You are my masterpiece. You are my workmanship. So you can stop patting yourself on the back. And you can stop pointing the fingers at others because, guess what? They're just as important to me as you are. And so if you can stop for a moment, if you could just stop for a moment and see yourself as I see you, you might begin to see yourself as you really are. And you also might start to see others for who they really are. And stop all this judging by what you see. Stop pointing your fingers at others, thinking that you're better than them. Stop thinking you've got it all together because you don't. But if you could see the picture that I see, God says, not just a today, but what yet is to come, because it says that he has planned good works in advance, long ago, for me to do. Not just for the last 39 years, but for hopefully years to come. He still has work for me to do. And he has work for you to do that call him Lord and Savior. And when you look in the mirror and you see yourself and sometimes you're disgusted with yourself or you look at your life and you think it's such a mess, be reminded that he is at work within you and he says you're his masterpiece, not just a work of art, you're his masterpiece. And I would say the reason we don't get that is because we don't know how much he loves us. We really don't know how much he loves us. We get fixed upon the things that are wrong. The hairlines, the waistlines, the bank account. We judge ourselves based upon these things. And we can see our sin. Remember, we've been taught that God has written his laws on our hearts and in our minds. Everyone. And his spirit lives in us. We can see our sin. We can see the mess. And it's easy to see the mess in others. But I think it comes because we lose sight of the mess within us and we don't understand just how much he loves us. 
We don't, we don't see ourselves as his masterpiece. We truly don't get that. Because I believe if we really got that, if we understood what he says about us, we wouldn't point our fingers at others. We wouldn't. The reason we point our fingers at others and see the mess in others' lives is because we don't see ourselves as he sees us. We don't see ourselves as his masterpiece, truly as his masterpiece, and perfect as he says he sees us, without sin. We see the sin in ourselves, and it's very easy to see the sin in the others because that's what we focus on, is the mess. And Paul's reminding us that it's by grace you've been saved. Earlier in chapter 2, it says, yeah, this is the way you used to be, but now because of what God has done, this is who you are. It's not by works, it's by grace you've been saved. So that you can't boast. You can't pat yourself on the back, and you certainly have no right to point your fingers at others. Because it's what God has done for you. He has created you new. He has done that. And he calls you his masterpiece. And he loves you deeply. And the reason we point our fingers is because we don't see that. Jesus told his disciples, a new command I have for you, love one another as I have loved you. Why don't we love one another? Because we don't get how he loves us. We truly don't get it. If we understood how he loved us, we would love others the way he loved us. But we want to point out the mess. We want to point out the faults. We want to point out the sin. We look in the mirror and we want to beat ourselves over the back because of our sin. But yet, Paul tells us in Romans 2.4 that it's his loving kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance. That sounds kind of backwards, doesn't it? We need to know our sin so that we repent. No, he says his loving kindness leads you to repentance. It's when you come to understand truly that he loves you just like you are, even when you were 18 and stupid, he loves you just the way you are, that you start to understand the depth of his love because you knew who you were at 18. You know who you are today. You know who you are today. And when you wrestle with this grace thing that we think is so easy, when you really struggle with it and understand that he loves you in spite of everything you know about yourself. And he says, you're my child, and you are loved, and you are perfect in my eyes. It, un it just undoes you. It just crushes you. It changes you. It changes the way you see yourself, and it changes the way you see the world. Because Jesus also said that he came for the world. Not just for you, not just for those that believe in him, but he sent his son for everyone. For God so loved the world. That he gave his son for people who are enemies, people who would reject him, the people we point our fingers at, he died for them. And he wants us to join him in the mission of telling them of the love of the Father. And to do that, we need to see them as he sees them. 
We need to stop pointing our fingers at their lifestyle and at their choices and at their sin and at the dirt in their lives, and we need to see them as he sees them. As a, as a creation of the living God. You know, there's a story in Luke 15. It's the story of the lost son, or it's titled the prodigal son, which you've probably heard more often. It's a story about this family. There's this father and there's these two sons. And the young son comes to the father one day and he says, I want my inheritance now, which is something a son would never do in that culture. And the father gives it to him, which is something else the father would never do in that culture, but he gives it to him. And the son takes it and he leaves and he goes to a far off land and he squanders everything. Living a horrible lifestyle, something way outside of the way the son was taught to live. And he squanders everything. And one day he's reached the lowest of lows and he's finding himself eating with pigs. And he thinks, if I can go home, if I could just go home and throw myself at the mercy of my father, maybe he would bring me back as a servant. And so he picks himself up and he heads back home. But before he can get there, the father runs out and hugs the son. Throws his arms around him. Puts his robe on him. Gives him his ring. Calls the servants and says, we're going to throw a party. My son's home. We're going to kill the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate because my son is home. The whole time this is going on, the older son is steaming. Right? He's like, really? I didn't leave. I was here working the whole time he was out partying. The whole time he's out there just turning his back on you, I've been here serving you, and you don't get it. You're going to kill the fattened calf for him? What about me? What about all the good that I have done for you? And the father turns to the older son and he says this. He says, my son, the father said, he said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we have had to celebrate, we have to celebrate and be glad because the, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See what the older brother lost sight of? just how much he was loved by the Father. Do you not know that I've loved you and given you everything already? See, the older brother lost sight of that because he was just fixated on the sins of his brother and jealous and envious and just angry. And the Father says, it's because you've lost sight of how much I've loved you. Do you not see that I love you? And that this is your brother? See, as the older brother, those within the church, we have this call to share the love of Jesus with the world around us. To be the hands and the feet of Jesus. But the world doesn't see us that way. The world sees us as condemning, as pointing, as judging. You know, the interesting thing about this story, it starts off this in verse 1 says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees were angry that he would hang around with people like this. But do you notice what he says? They drew near to Jesus. The perfect one. The truly righteous one. The one without sin. Who would have every right, as we read in Philippians, to point his finger at them, but didn't. What drew them to him? It had to have been the love and the acceptance in his eyes. 
It had to be they saw in his eyes something they hadn't seen ever. And that was love and acceptance. The worst of this culture was accepted by Jesus. And that's the context in which Jesus tells a story about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. To those inside the church, he's saying, those outside the church aren't drawing near to you because they don't see the love of Jesus in your eyes. They see the same pointing fingers of the Pharisees pointing out their sin. In his story, in his book, The Mud and the Masterpiece, author John Burke, a pastor of a church down in Austin, Texas, writes this, and he uses this illustration. He said, if you were out in the, in the English countryside and you were in a barn and you came into this barn and in this barn you saw this painting sitting over in the corner and it's all covered in mud and it's torn, the canvas is torn and you look at it and, and you recognize, like, wow, that looks like a Rembrandt. And as you get closer and you look in, he's like, I think that's a Rembrandt. What do you do to that painting? You go look for like a a scraper and try to scrape all the mud off of it or hose and hose it down if it truly is a Rembrandt and priceless? Is that what you do with it? No, you don't do that with it, would you? No, you would take the painting, be careful with it, and you would take it to a master restorer, wouldn't you? You would take it to someone who could restore the painting to its original condition. Someone that would know how to do that. You wouldn't try to clean it off yourself. You would take it to the master restorer. He says, as a church, that's our role. We need to see the masterpiece that God sees. The thing that God has created. He strives for us to see that. Not to be focused on the mud, but to be focused on the masterpiece. And to bring that masterpiece to the master restorer. Because it's not us that are going to clean them up. We're not going to clean their mud off with our mud, only making it worse. And we're not going to tell them, you need to clean yourself up and then bring yourself to the restorer. No. We bring them just the way they are to the master restorer so that they can experience the love of God. But they first experience that in our eyes and in our actions as they see the eyes of Jesus in the church. That's God's plan for us, is that we would be a place like that. We would be a place, we would be a people that people would want to draw near so that we could tell them about the master restorer. But they're not going to draw near if all they see is this and condemnation. And all we do is point out their mud. He's saying, if you understood how I see you, let's start there. If you understood how I saw you, if you could truly grapple with and sit for just a moment in that identity, that just as you are right now, the way you've been and the way you will be, 
I consider you my masterpiece, perfect, loved. I loved you no less then than I love you now or I will in the future. Sit in that identity and see if it doesn't change the way you see yourself and the way you see others. That's what he desires for this world, that we, the church, would be the hope of the world, that the world would see the love of Jesus in our eyes. Let me ask you a final question. What is something worth? You ever been asked that question, what is something worth? What's my car worth? What's my house worth? What's my house worth? I would say, whatever someone's willing to pay for it, right? That's exactly what God says. You are priceless because you were worth his son. Not only you, but the entire world. Those outside the church, those inside the church, those that don't know him, those that are living a lifestyle that we would say is outside of his will. Priceless. Because he gave the most precious thing in the world, his son. Priceless. That's how he says he sees you, and that's how he sees everyone. And his desire is that we could start to see ourselves that way. That we would start to live in that identity. And that we would stop focusing on the mess and begin to see the masterpiece. Because he's still at work. He's still not done. He continues to work and promises to work in us. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began the good work in you, he will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. I pray you see yourself clearer as you look into the mirror of God's word. And I would encourage you to do that daily so that you don't forget and remind your children daily whose they are. In Jesus' name. Amen.